Welcome to Women Read Scripture, Come Follow Me, New Testament. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Annette Marie Lantos Tilleman Dick. Thank you for being here, Annette, again today. I, you know, I have to laugh. We were talking about what should we wear? And I know we had a big discussion about that. And I have to admit, my my husband was overhearing that discussion and was kind of you know, making fun of us as he was putting on his sweatpants and his T-shirt and said, oh, how do I look? (laughs) I only have limited options here. So we tried to to coordinate (laughs) a little little bit. bit. I know. Um, That being said, I think it's interesting as we talk about Mark 1, Luke 3, and Matthew 3 today, our focus is going to be a lot on baptism which is becoming a new creature, a new person. Um, But we're going to talk a little bit about Mark here at the beginning and do a little more background about the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes that you're going to be talking about, which I'm really excited about to hear from your perspective. But Mark came from a relatively wealthy home. And like we talked about last time, John also came from, from relative wealth. And when you think about that, what a great blessing it was that they did come from homes that had the wealth and the ability for them to give up all and to go and follow the Savior to be able to do that without hurting the rest of their family, you know, that it wasn't devastating them when they went and did that. It says a lot about those families. It says a lot about those families in that society, how devout and how I'm going to use a word that doesn't exist, which is Joseph Smithian, their families must have been. Because, I mean, that was something interesting about Joseph Smith's family, that they were here so was this 14-year-old so kid who has this experience, right. and his father, who is not church-going particularly, but is devout, says, Joseph, this is important. You you need to And you kind follow of get it. the feeling that these men were in very similar homes. Yes. They were people that were well-educated in terms of Scripture. As we know, Joseph was raised on Scripture, you know, from from a child. And yet they were also very willing for these men and realized men also took care of their families. And so when a man left a household, that was a, that was a, a big drain on the family, the resources and their ability to continue. Yes. And, and that they, but they, and they were, they had to be deeply versed in scripture because they recognized the Messiah. They recognized the significance of Of the following, yes, of of being called and following. And um, there was no question. And that was because they were deeply educated. Oh, um, of the scriptures. Through the scriptures and through their lives, you Mm -hmm. know, and had been... But um, but it is it is very impressive also within the society within within which they lived that they were willing to walk away from the ordinary ways right. of of doing what you're supposed to do and follow this new prophet new who they knew was more than a prophet. Well, we have an interesting story here in Acts 12. We gain a little bit of an understanding of Mark and his family here. This is when Peter, and I'm sure you remember this, the martyrdom of James, the first martyr, had just happened. And Peter had also been put into prison. And I'm sure that Peter and all the Christians at that point were very, very worried that Peter was going to be the next martyr. 
And then an angel comes and basically unlocks the door and Peter's able to come out. And it's we notice here that Peter, when he comes to himself, he comes to a house. And he says, and when he had considered, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. So John's first name, I mean, Mark's first name was was John. His surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So his mother, I I thought this was really interesting that his mother is mentioned here, the house of Mary. And so it is her house where a bunch of Christians are gathered. They're praying for Peter, and Mark is there too with his mother— and they're all praying that that Peter will not be the next martyr. And then I just love the story. Peter knocked. And of course, Rhoda, and we all love Rhoda. She's just so excited when she hears Peter's voice that she goes, runs, you know, rather than opening the door. But um, for me, that's kind of <laughs> like me. Don't send the, I forget to send message, you know, the text. And... But I do think that this is a powerful kind of introduction to who Mark was and who his mother was. Yes. The fact that his his it was Mary's house that they were at, that it was large enough to have multiple people there praying and thinking about the Savior. So obviously, you know, a larger home. And then we learn right after that that he leaves with Barnabas and Saul Paul to become a missionary. And Mark truly was a great missionary. He did go on a lot of missions. And a matter of fact, he was in Rome with both Peter and Paul. He's He spent time in Rome with both of them. And it is also thought that Peter was the one that asked Mark to write this gospel very specifically to make sure that people understood that Jesus Christ was the incarnate Son of God, that that's the purpose of what Mark is writing. And Mark's gospel is the shortest. It is not as long as as some of the others. But I do think there is this focus on Jesus Christ as, you know, he he shows more and more miracles. We're going to see here in Mark 1, where right after the baptism, the very first thing that Mark shows the Savior is doing, Mark shows the Savior is doing, is these miracles, miracle after miracle after miracle. You can imagine how how they must have felt, you know, that all these miracles unfolding before their eyes. But but they it was not the miracles that brought them to Jesus to the Savior. They, I agree. to the Savior. That was that's not, not the not testimony, for right? No, that's it not wasn't. Their testimony, their testimony preceded. I agree. That, I agree. It seems to me, and um, I think it's so interesting to me the significance that you brought up of Mary, his mother, being there. We mm-hmm. see in the scriptures with Timothy, with others, that their mothers, their grandmothers, had a great impact on the oh, way on their these— testimonies. On their and... commitment and their conviction both. And it really underscores our responsibility. It reminds me, and I think I'm a little bit maybe remiss in this, that even as your children get older— I think in our society, we're sort of like, you know, we don't want to step over our bounds. We don't want that. We still have a responsibility to be setting that example, to be including our children, our adult children, in the ways that we have found 
bring us and keep us close to the Lord. I mean, I feel a little convicted because I think sometimes as my children get older, I feel, well, they'll read their own scriptures, they'll pray. I'm not sure that's quite right. I agree. Well, I keep on, and this is just me, you know, just kind of making up the story, but I think of Mark as he goes about on his missionary journeys and his loving mother maybe sending him, because he he would go, when he would go on a mission, he would literally be in places for years and years and years. As a matter of fact, to the end of his life, it is thought that Mark went to Alexandria, Egypt, and was the one that started basically the Christian church there in Egypt and was actually killed as a martyr there there in Egypt. But as he goes around the world, I just vision his mother sending letters, you know, saying, oh, thank you, son, for continuing the testimony. But when you talked about how basically our testimonies are not based on miracles, I think of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees who saw the same miracles but did not have the testimony that Jesus was the Christ. Even though they saw the miracles, they were there during the miracles, but they did not have that same testimony that Mark and others had. Well, you know, I mean, one of the reasons was these were groups that were very much part of the ongoing society, and they were faithful in their way, and they believed their ways were the right ways, and they had different ways of being faithful. I love, I like thinking about the scribes, I mean, scribes, what does it mean to be a scribe, Marianne? What A scribe, just a scribe. Well, this is an interesting question for me because I am right now a scribe. My husband is a, a, a patriarch for our stake, and so I am the scribe. I'm the one that, that actually types up, you know, the patriarchal blessings, and then, then he goes and reviews them. But uh, so I, 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 know what a scri- I know what I a scribe is. <laughs> I'm able to, that's you know, amazing. to do that right now in my life as uh, being a scribe. But you, basically that that's what the scribes would do is that they would be the ones that would, you know, write down, be a part of the law, understand the law, read the and, law. And of course, there were no printing presses. So right. they were copying also the scriptures that they already had. They were making new copies. They were also doing many. It also became... Um, not only a religious activity, but they were contracts and other things were done by the scribes. Many of those religious contracts were scribed. And of course, as they copied and copied, they became very knowledgeable. Because oh, I know when you, you write things, it really does sink into your brain so much better than, than just reading. Exactly. And I think it's very helpful to understand that they had a function. And their function was very much related to the society that was there mm-hmm. as it was. And so this, cl- you know, this claim of Messiahship, of being something, that was a big thing to have somebody claim. And sure. it would be very disruptive to their world. I'm not talking even so much about the scribes, but because they were lower on the totem pole. Sure. But... um. The Sadducees and the Sadducees and the Pharisees came from two different were they were two different flavors of the same thing, but they were definitely different flavors, and in that way, at times very much at odds with one another as well. Um, and um, they were they both the Sadducees and the Pharisees in different ways represented the religious establishment of the day in Israel. Um, the Sadducees came from they they came from the line of the Hasmonean dynasty 
which was the Maccabees. Right, who we talked about after before. We talked about that. and But they then were the rulers in the temple and the leaders of society. They were very much um, about the world as it was now. Mm-hmm. And they, if they were looking for a Messiah, were looking for someone to definitely liberate them. From Rome. Politically. Sure. They, they didn't want to have the Romans ruling. They probably wanted to be the rulers themselves. It, that's right. right. Abs- and... To them, God was distant. He was not right there. He was distant. The, the Sadducees actually were known for not believing in a resurrection, not Which I find fascinating. In an afterlife. Right. Really. Because it if you don't believe in an afterlife, life. right, it's all about this life and what happens here, and here and now. And living according to God's rules in this life, but they just didn't, I mean... There was sometimes maybe some, but no, that was not a part of their world. Right. The Pharisees were, and, and the Sadducees were um, elite. They were, a, they were, um, the they were the ruling class, right. basically among the, the Jewish Jews. people, right. among the Jewish people. Um, the Romans they, were the Romans were still very much in charge, totally. And so that's their idea of liberation and a Messiah. Was to get rid was, of the Romans. Yeah, was somebody that would be the king that would restore the kingship. You know, first right. they wanted their own country, but they wanted the kingship of David to be to restored. Yes. So it was a very concrete thing that they were aspiring to. And um, they were not that spiritual in that way. You know, I mean, in, in the way of their own connection, they, they did believe that you had an obligation to... Free, a free will to choose how you are going to live your life and live it in harmony with God's laws. And um, they had a they had an understanding of the way those laws were supposed to be lived. Mm-hmm. It did not look that different from the Sadducees, but between themselves, there were huge arguments, you know, about the details sure. of the law. The I mean, the, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, the Pharisees were um, the more popular group that wanted to bring religion to the people. Um, They were, the Sadducees, for example, did not, they believed that the word in the five books of Moses was what was the word, what what needed to go on. And these commentaries that had arisen over the years were not of interest to them. They did have their own way of doing it, Mm -hmm. but their idea was that we read the book and we do it just like it's in the book. And that is very important, you know. The Pharisees had were much more interested in making it accessible to people, people. and um, they were in, they were um, they were a, very devout too. Mm-hmm. And all of the both of these groups considered themselves righteous and more righteous than those who were not. Part of those their, groups. It, right. Part of those groups. Right. I think that, that there, I don't know about you, Mariana, but I do understand that we have a danger within the church where we have so many wonderful truths and so many wonderful ways to live our life right. that help us feel the spirit, help us build families that are strong, help us um, avoid a lot of the things that be, if we are faithful, you know, we have a lot of guidance. Don't drink coffee. We don't, we don't waste money on 
alcohol. We don't waste sure. money on drugs. We don't make, you know. Pay our tithing. Pay our tithing. Tithe that helps us to organize our lives in certain mm-hmm. ways. Go to the table. It is easy. It is a little too easy to slip into the idea of being superior. I'm be- right. I'm better because I do all of these wonderful things. And, and, and that it is, is, that is it a is, problem. It is a problem that I think we need to be aware of. I agree. Within the church. It is a, the gospel is a fabulous thing for our lives, for our, for the world, for our relationships, for our relationships to one another, for our relationships, for marriage relationships, for family relationships, for neighbor relationships with our neighbors and with, with others in the world, we go out and seek to help in so many ways, you know, not only by sharing the gospel, but with all of the different ways we, we do mission work. But it is so important to remember that we be humble in that work. And I think that is when when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to see, see John, the ba- the John baptizing, right. he had some harsh words for them. Do you want to read those? I don't know. They were, I can. Sure. So, um, and it's in Matthew 3. Go yes. Ahead. And, um, and when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, <laughs> who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. I'm, I, I'll go on, but then I want to circle back. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able to, of these stones, uh, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Um, I'm just going to stop there for a moment. Fruits meet for repentance. What does that mean? Well, I I love this this verse because I think it basically goes to verse ten. I know you were going to read that, but I yeah. think that we need to bring eight and ten together because at ten he's talking about the tree and the fruits again, and he said, "And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees." Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So when we talk about fruits, meat for repentance, we're talking about good fruits. We're talking about mind, heart, and actions. You know, all three of those need to be in that repentance change. You know, I, I want to be different. I want to change my ways. I don't want to be the same I was before. Instead, I am ready to become a different person. And those are the fruits that we must have in our hearts, mind, and in our actions as well. And ready to look at ourselves critically and not sort of put ourselves sort of ahead in the game because of our good associations. Because right. this, in, in that case, that, there is already such a sense of superiority that it was hard for them to get to a place where they would really be repenting of the things that they needed to repent of. And there is also a, you know, a a dangerous um, tendency when we are doing so many things right to sort of paper over the things that we aren't doing well. And I think that this idea of repentance and forgiveness are related. I think that we can't repent until we understand what it is we need to repent of. Oh, definitely. And I think 
figuring that out can be a process. One of the things that I found quite helpful in something that I read once was is called radical forgiveness, which is that when we are offended by something or someone, it is very valuable to think carefully, first of all, first of all, if we can forgive them, and then to understand that we will be forgiven as we are, as we forgive. Right. And oftentimes the things that offend us most are things that maybe we haven't looked at carefully in ourselves. And I think that that these tools for being able to really repent so that we can really be forgiven are important. It is important that we understand that what fruits are meat for repentance. Well, and maybe that's the reason why I know we sometimes vilify the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and we think, oh, what evil people, you know, how come they can't recognize what, you know, that this is the Savior? And I think we too have those blind spots where, just like you were describing, when people will bring up things or will get offended, because obviously the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes become offended multiple times with the totally. Savior. Totally, yeah. And so we too must also look inside ourselves. This is also one of the reasons why, basically, John the Baptist was there to prepare the way. His message was one of repentance. We need to change. You know, children of Israel, we need to change. We need to be prepared for he who was going to come after. And, and of course, offering this cleansing of repentance. Because, of course, that's repentance is a great gift that we're given, that we are a when we recognize how we need to repent and we sincerely repent. And of course, we know that, that through the Savior's atonement, we can truly be forgiven. But we also, I love that line, forgive us as we forgive those who have trespassed against us in the Lord's Prayer. I love that. That our repentance is tied to our forgiveness. And our forgiveness of ourselves. You know, Absolutely. and I think sometimes that's maybe the hardest person to forgive is ourselves for the things that we've done in the past. And, you know, that also gives us the ability to change. And it is so important that we cleanse ourselves not by repenting and forgiving others mm -hmm. and ourselves, repenting ourselves, re forgiving others and forgiving ourselves and, and accepting that cleansing gift right. that that comes with baptism. You know, I, I did want to mention something in, in terms of what President Nelson, he said something at the Christmas devotional a few years ago in 2018. He said, true repentance is not an event. It is a never-ending privilege. It is fundamental to progression and having peace of mind, comfort, and joy. This reminded me a lot. I When I go to the temple, I love sitting in the celestial room and just sitting there contemplating, what do I need to do to do better? What do I need to do to change? And I was commenting this to one of my um, neighbors who I walk with in the mornings. And I just said, oh, I just love going to the temple and finding out what I need to do to repent. And then she turned to me and she goes, well, then why do you go to the temple? <laughs> you know, that must be, you know, so depressing to always find out all these bad things you've done. And I said, no, I love it. It makes me feel loved. It makes me feel like the Lord is looking at my life and understands me. 
And it just helps me to be a, a better person every time I leave the temple, knowing those things I need to change. I love what you said, Mariana, because I was thinking of this sweet woman in our ward who used to say, it really bothers me when people get up there, people who I know are leading good lives and say, I need to repent so often every day. She says, I know they're good and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I thought, I took a deep breath and I thought, she lived alone. <laughs> You know, she didn't live with other people <laughs> because that's a key. <laughs> yeah, that, that may be make it easier be, not to right. be so aware of <laughs> of all the things that you need to do. Which I think is one of the reasons that we are called. We are called to live in community. We are called to live together because if we do, we will hopefully be led to peel back those layers of our ourselves and find the ways that we can change and we can be cleaned in a new way. And that is, it is, it is the most important task that we are here on earth to accomplish really is to, to save ourselves as it were. And the only way we can do that is why do they keep saying repent, repent, repent? Well, you know, we, if we aren't, we may not be doing a lot of things, you know, that are good, but it's because we are not the Savior. He is the only one who led a perfect life. And it is only by that constant process of repenting and forgiving. And you, I, I really believe in using that forgiveness process to help us understand things about ourselves that we might not, we might not want to look at. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I love about what we're going to be talking about today is that about the doctrine of Christ, because the doctrine of Christ, Savior himself lives the doctrine of Christ. He is the ultimate example of the doctrine of Christ in our lives. And missionaries every day say our purpose is, and then they repeat what the doctrine of Christ is. And I have to admit, I can say it better in Portuguese than I can say in English, but our purpose is to, you know, to have faith in Jesus Christ, to repent, to be baptized, to then after baptism, receive the Holy Ghost, and then endure to the end. We see that pattern, especially here, where we see John the Baptist, first telling people, repent, and then be baptized, and then receive the Holy Ghost. And that's we're going to, to talk about that in a minute. But then we have to endure to the end, which causes us to do that constant repenting, that constant forgiving, you know, that just goes over and over and over again. It's and every time we take a covenant, we have to go through the same thing. We, every time we go to the temple, take that covenant. Every time we partake of the sacrament, we have to go through the same repentance process and recovenanting ourselves. And then we have sanctification through the Holy Ghost and then enduring to the end until we go through the same process again. Absolutely. And I think that actually, you know, every day as we pray and as we seek guidance from the Spirit, um, that is part of it is to to understand what the Lord wants us to do and what he doesn't want us to do. And what he doesn't well. want us to do. I think sometimes that is the hardest part right there. Now, I when we talk about the baptism of the Savior, for me, as you already mentioned last week, uh, my baptism is truly foundational in my life. I mean, I know I was only 18. I mean, I was only eight years old and you were 19, right? Yeah. You were 19 when you were baptized. And I think the power of our two baptism stories 
is that it doesn't matter if you're a child of eight or if you're an adult, that is such a powerful time to be able to partake of that covenant and have it truly be a rock, uh, you know, the foundation of your testimony. Your testimony might not be full. It might not be complete, but that is an ongoing, constant process, I think, throughout eternity. I think we'll still have questions throughout eternity. But not only questions, but there will be vistas open to us. You know, maybe we didn't even have a question, and suddenly we see so much more, and we believe so much more. But to do so, we need to take those covenants seriously when we make them. And, And when we put our foot to the path, Consider it truly a commitment we're making to the Creator. Well, and we need to remember the covenant and the feelings that we felt. And I think sometimes we forget how we felt at baptism. Now, it's interesting. My baptism, I was eight years old, and I have to admit, I won't, I don't know if I want to say how old I am, but I will say it was over 50 years ago. I won't say how many years uh, over 50, but for me, (laughs) (laughs) but for me, as I was thinking about that, I can remember the talk that was given. Basically, the bishop that gave the talk had just come home from uh, a cruise. And so we talked about what first class looked like and what second class looked like and what, you know, steerage looked like and the difference between the three. And then he asked, well, which one do you want to be in? And of course, all of us were like, first class. We definitely (laughs) want to be in first class. And then he talked about how this covenant would enable us to finally reach that first class place. The other thought that came into my mind and memory that was so strong was receiving the Holy Ghost. And I truly did feel that that spiritual manifestation, but also an interesting physical one. As I felt the hands on my head, I can remember talking to my father about a month later and said, you know, every once in a while, I still feel those hands on my head. And my father saying, you know, that's just a physical manifestation that you're feeling of, you know, what happened as you were given the gift of the Holy Ghost. For me, I can still remember those feelings. And a lot of that is because I wrote them down. You know, I still have a record of them. So I would challenge people, invite people to um, write down your thoughts and feelings about your baptism, no matter when it happened, no matter when it occurred. And then to remember, and then to remember. That's such a good idea, Mariana, to even to go back. I mean, we think, I know, you know, because we try to keep... um, journals. Mm-hmm. And some some of us are more or less faithful. And um, I mean, we know of the prophets who every single day did it. I know that over the years, I do have many, many, many books that I've kept, but sometimes there's bursts of diligence and then there are long periods. And I have books that have 10 different years in them because they're all in there. But we think about the gospels. They were written, some of them were, the some of the first ones were written within those first years after Jesus died. Right. Some of them in the first hundred years, maybe, right. you know, at the time. We, we should take advantage of the fact that we're still in our life to record these things of meaning. It is so valuable. And one might think, oh, my baptism, it happened for me 50 years ago, I, you know. And, I know. And, um, and I, I don't know if I've written specifically about it. Maybe I have. Um, I remember it, 
very well. But I don't remember who spoke. But see, that's the positive thing is that we can still go back years later and write about those remembrances. Exactly. You know, if we didn't do it, it's not like, oh, no, I didn't write it, so I can never write it. But we've learned from the Gospels, because these were written long after, that we too can write those spiritual thoughts and memories. And I think that is an extremely important lesson that we learn from the gospel. I love the idea of our baptism, but of life in general. Oh, definitely. You know, this is one All thing the that spiritual events. I am so grateful that in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are strongly encouraged to keep records of our lives. Yeah. Other people do it. They have the benefit too. I know that it is one of the indescribably wonderful things in my life to be able to pick up those old journals and open them and read what I felt close enough to the time. Sure. Because sometimes I think, well, maybe over time, you know, I've I've um, glamorized it or I felt, but it's so fun to read. What I find very interesting is also to read about the births of my babies and the descriptions I make of them. And they are so close to the way that these children they grew really up. They really are. Yes. Oh, I agree. Impressions. Times of are revelation. I agree. Yes. I do the same thing with my, my yes. babies too. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. And it's stunning it that, stunning. that, that the, the spirit and talents and strengths of, and even we And personality. And personality even, of that even though they're brand new babies. To you. Yeah. And I you agree. write it down and 30 years later you're, Okay, I got it right. (laughs) So that is something that I really would love to encourage anybody who listens to us that they write down their stories. They write down down the spiritual memories that they have because these are powerful and important things that can serve not only you to motivate and strengthen you, but your family one day may also be strengthened by Well, and this idea of remembering as we go back to this idea of the baptism and one of the things that we are so blessed every week is to partake of the sacrament, which is an opportunity for us to remember our baptism and the covenants that we made during that time. Now, Ma- one thing I wanted to emphasize, and it's so beautiful, and that in this moment when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, we have this very distinct experience of Jesus' presence the Holy Ghost descending upon him, and we understand it to be in the form of a dove. Yes, what I the Joseph Smith translation that, that talks specifically, and about that, that John the Baptist was advised that upon whom he saw the spirit of the Holy Ghost settle in this form, this would be the savior of the world. This Isn't would that be wonderful. the one and. You know, I thought about that, that once in a while, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where the the Lord says, watch for this. Mm -hmm. And when you see it, you know you can proceed. You're doing fine. You can can continue along that path. And I know that I've had that experience where I've been given insight that something will happen, and it happens, and it's so encouraging to me because I think, okay, I'm— I think I'm on the right path. Right, right. And in this moment, it says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened with unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. 
And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Here we have the three members of the Godhead together. And they're all bearing witness of what has happened. All three. Extraordinary, almost inconceivable love of our Creator for us. That he came here as a helpless child, that he trusted those he'd created who he knew, he knew were flawed right. and imperfect, were imperfect, to care for him, to bring him forth so that he, we could see God in Jesus Christ. Because it, it says in, in John, no, no man has seen God, but in the person of Jesus, we, man was able to see in action what God and who God was. Isn't that powerful? I do think, too, as we talk about this spiritual event and all three coming together to to testify of this wonderful event, doesn't that also teach us a lot about the Godhead in general? Well, yes. I mean, we, I mean, Jesus wasn't a ventriloquist, you know, I don't think. And so there is a, the voice of God the Father. Well, and we had many people that heard this. So the, so the witness and the testimony isn't just of John the Baptist and Jesus, but there was a crowd I mean, of people. There were and many, you know, people that many witnesses that recorded it. Right. And so these three entities that we believe are very much our, our Godhead, mm-hmm. working in complete harmony with one another. In one purpose. One purpose three individuals. And I think that whole thing about being individuals tells us a little bit of the importance of the fact that the word was made flesh. Oh, I love that. I think that this is an important thing that John emphasizes Mm -hmm. that Jesus was not coming to earth as a lesser. He was made flesh so that we could see him. And as we could, the son of God. As the son of God. And I think, for me, this idea, I used to think, you know, there were times in my spiritual development when I thought, well, the spirit is what's really important. It's the spirit that's important, not our bodies. Enough. I will tell you that when our baby, we had a little baby who died of sudden infant death. His name was Lincoln Justice. And he was a perfectly beautiful little baby. Oh, I'm so sorry. And... um. It was, you know, a sort of unthinkable. I, he was our seventh child, so we had six other children. And I realized in this moment of terror in my life that I had the choice of either believing all the things I'd claimed to believe or letting go of it. And in, in that moment, I felt for my children and for me that it was important to hold on to what I believed. Oh, I'm so glad and, you did. Oh, well, for I, your family and for us as well. For all of us, but it was it was a devastating experience, and it was hard to think. My one of my beloved friends, Chris Sandoval, came to my home and said, "Annette, we have to plan the funeral." And even to hear the words "funeral" with my beautiful baby was just—I felt like I was going to choke and die. Sure. In the midst of it, one of the things we did was we had to go to the mortuary where our baby was. And um, we had to plan for the where he would be buried and all these things. And one of the men there who was helping said, oh, you know, he's here. You can come in and see 
the baby. Um, you can see Lincoln. Do you want to? And I, you know, I just, I, I'm thinking, I looked at my husband, well, of course I want to, you know, I, I, I want to. I went in and we picked up my baby who was just perfect, like a beautiful baby doll. Never had I understood the idea of resurrection in the way that I understood in that moment. As much as my baby had a beautiful spirit and I looked forward to being with the spirit, I knew that I wanted to be with that beautiful baby again. I, I knew that that would be heaven to me, to be able to be with this spirit. And I, I think that that is what we learn here, is that our bodies are an important part of our spiritual journey. That the, the Lord came and he took, had to be baptized. He had to go through those physical, those and, those physical things that all I, of us have to go through. Yeah, and I symbols think it's of dark wonderful. Covenant. It's a wonderful thing to know that this is an important part of our spiritual journey. As that. much as we want to evolve our spirits and we want to not be slaves to our body and we want to be able to um, have our body used for good purposes to serve the Lord, that that it is a gift to us, and it is a gift that the Lord plans to return to us, and he plans to return to us those that we loved who are no longer Well, here. and we talk about the symbol of baptism, and thank you so much for sharing that beautiful story, because we think about the symbol of baptism of going down into the grave yes. and coming up as a resurrected new person, changed completely because of the covenant of baptism. And what a beautiful example you've given us of that hope of resurrection, which actually comes first step from the covenant of baptism. You know, for, for me, like I said, I, I love to look at the Book of Mormon as a companion to some of these things that we're talking about. And of course, in, in 2 Nephi 31, which is the great doctrine of Christ scripture. You know, all missionaries <laughs> love section, I mean, chapter 31 of 2 Nephi because it's just full of the doctrine of Christ. But also in this chapter, it tells us why, why the Savior had to be baptized, even though he was perfect. Yes. He still had to go through this physical ordinance of being put down into the water and coming back. And this is one of the last wonderful doctrines of our wonderful prophet Nephi, where he talks very specifically about this. And he said, and now if the Lamb of God, he being holy, should have need to be baptized by water to fulfill all righteousness, oh then, how much more need have we, being unholy, to be baptized, yea, even by water? And again, it showeth unto the children of men the straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate by which they should enter, he having set the example before them. He set the example, and, and it was a physical example of him, even though he was Jehovah, the creator, he still allowed himself, as you explained so beautifully, to humbly come here and be our example. And that the, he has given us this opportunity, all of us, to see God. It says no man has seen God, but we have seen God because we have this incredible example before us of the creator of the world humbly coming to earth and taking these steps that we also need to stay, take. 
But he reminds us that we need to keep repenting, repenting, exactly. repenting. And not only to cry repentance. Why does he say cry repentance? Because cry repentance and repent simultaneously. You yeah, know, this we is, have to do it. It is and we have to cry. Yes. To and, and, right. and as we do so, and I love, Mariana, what you said, which is that as we begin to sincerely engage in this, this path of repentance, this, exactly. this seeking for repentance, mm-hmm. It is a thrilling undertaking. to, And it will mean that everybody who shows us some place where we've done wrong, I love what Joseph Smith said, you know, when people said, how do you handle it, all this persecution, all these attacks, these lies and everything? He said, well, you know, I listen to everything. And if it is irrelevant, I just let it roll off me like water off a duck. But if there's even a tiny bit of truth in it, I take it as a gift and an opportunity to make myself a better person. The humble and meekness of that statement is so powerful. And it's such a great lesson for us. Mm -hmm. It means that anytime we feel we're attacked, say, bring it on, bring it on. I want to learn from that. I want to learn how to become a better person because of that. Well, and that goes right along with the, the second thing I wanted to talk about, which is we have the the baptism by water, but we also have the baptism by fire of the Holy Ghost. And for me, that is also the opportunity to have that cleansing power. The Holy Ghost is the sanctifier. It's the one that helps us to feel that we are doing a better job, that we are doing better, that we are improving, that yes, we still need to go through the cycle, but we're getting better and better and better. And the Holy Ghost gives us the opportunity to get better and better and better. And the, right. the thing directs that, us. The too. thing that I have found, you know, in my now fifty-year membership in the church, so people will know exactly how old <laughs> I am. Um, maybe fifty-one years. <laughs> um, um, that it has been a process of understanding it. I think that first year. I just felt like it was this flame of wonderful beauty that surrounded me and lit my path. But over the years, it has been, I have learned that there is a process to hearkening to the Spirit, to stopping. You need to stop, not just boldly move ahead. Yes, you can be bold, but take that moment or sometimes more than a moment. Right. Stand still, you know, as the Lord says, stand still. And Sister Holland wrote a beautiful book. I'm trying to remember the name of her book, but she said that sometimes... She would have to for a whole day. And she said it seemed very expensive because there was so much to do. But she realized she needed the direction to move forward with clarity in her life. Mm -hmm. And that it was worth not doing all the things on her to-do list. To focus on communing with the Spirit and understanding what the Lord wanted her to do. Well, and I think that's really powerful because as women, we have such a long to-do list. I mean, we have to worry about all of these, you know, uh, dinner and lunch and breakfast. Children always have to eat, oh, and, you know. And, I mean, and Marietta, <laughs> you the house, all the other things yes. that we do too that, that kind of keep us going. I, I will say this, that the Holy Ghost can also help us understand how to use our time better. Yes. And, uh, you know, one of my uh, favorite 
experiences was after I did my dissertation defense, and this was in in Seattle where there aren't a, a lot of members of the church. And so after I gave my defense, and it was full of people, none of them that I knew, to hear the research that I had done. And this woman came up to me, and she goes, you know, I, I know you don't know me, but she said, I know you, because, you know, at the time we were um, kind of active in the community there in Seattle, and Steve was the state president, and we had 12 children, which made us an anomaly. <laughs> and you were everywhere. <laughs> kind of a strange, strange group. Um, but she said, I, you know, I know that you have all those things. And she said, you know, I realize that I, you know, I only have two children, and, you know, and I'm not doing as much as you, but how did you do it? How did you do a dissertation on top of everything else? And I looked at her and gave her a, 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 something that I think just, you should have seen her face when I answered her. I said, I go to the temple every week, and the Holy Ghost helps me know wh- how to prioritize my life. And and I do think that that is kind of the key to time management, but also to life management, to understand what it is that is most important. Yes. How can we accomplish the most important things every day is by by looking at that. I did want to just bring back one more thing, and that is sacrament meeting. I still want to bring back sacrament meeting as another time to stand still and remember our baptismal covenants and to to review them in our mind. Do you have any thoughts about that and sacrament meeting? I love that because sacrament meeting, it's hard to describe what a refreshment it is of our covenants to go to sacrament meeting. It's so, you know, our church is a lay church. And as we know, I mean, it's, I think maybe when we have the spirit, we think every meeting is fantastic because I, I, there are periods where I just think, how do we have so many brilliant speakers in our very <laughs> humble ward? We ha- I, I am in a wonderful ward that is half Spanish speaking and half English speaking, and we do it all. We do oh, Spanish speaking and English speaking together, which is, is really so wonderful. And I love it. Um, but I will say that if we go to sacrament meeting, and of course, both of us had many, many, many children. Mariana, you come from a little more of a tradition because you had you were also one of 12 children. Yes. Your family were members of the church, and you had a little... I It was a brand new thing for me. <laughs> and I remember just with my first child co- going to sacrament, and, you know, he didn't want to sit still. He wanted to run over... I, a sacrament Why? is hard with well, children. It, it is. It was like an ordeal, but I realized it was probably like, you know, the those trials that they gave in the Greek mythology that you just have to <laughs> endure this. You have to, you know, follow the child up and down the stairs this many times and you have to. Um, I do believe that that is true. I do believe that for all the joy that I receive now when I go alone, people are like, Mom, do you want to go? I don't mind being alone. <laughs> I sort of love it. But, but. And are, am able to just listen to the spirit and listen to the talks, that the joy and the lessons of sacrament meeting are there for us at every stage in our life. And sometimes Amen. it's only I, obedience. I, I, you know? I do 100% agree with that. I know my husband was a very young bishop, and we had a lot of very young children, and he was always up on the stand, and I was always the one that was struggling oh, yes, below. And if I made it through the sacrament, it was a good day. Oh. It was, you know, it was... Getting them dressed, getting them there, getting them to be quiet, you know, and I mean, trying to keep them constructively engaged. It was a good day, but also 
it was an achievement. And I believe that we both left refreshed, even though it was exhausting. I agree. And and I, I would agree. encourage, I would encourage anyone listening to understand that going to sacrament meeting where we renew our covenants, which is the central part of our sacrament meeting, but also we attest to the importance of doing the things in the Lord's way by being there. I it agree. It is almost like being baptized. And obedience yes. is, is part of is the refreshment. to fulfill all righteousness. Right. We are there. We are there. I love, there was a wonderful talk by Elder Holland. Um, he talked about, and, and it's interesting to me because the name of the talk was Behold the Lamb of God. And the whole talk was about sacrament meeting. Yes. And for me, wow. To behold the Lamb of God and think that's the reason why I'm here partaking this sacrament is to behold the Lamb of God in my life, to show that example, to testify. And he says, um, this hour ordained of the Lord is the most sacred hour of our week. By commandment, we gather for the most universally received ordinance in the church. It is in memory of him who asked if the cup he was about to drink could pass, only to press on because he knew that for our sake it could not pass. It will help us if we remember that a symbol of that cup is slowly making its way down the road toward us at the hand of an 11 or 12-year-old deacon. When the sacred hour comes to present our sacrificial gift to the Lord, and sometimes, as we said, when we're there with little children, it is a sacrificial gift, we do have our own sins and shortcomings to resolve. That's why we're here. That's why we're at sacrament, to be able to help us resolve those amazing you know, problems that we have. And I do say amazing because sometimes they are pretty amazing, the problems that we have in our life. It's true. And awesome. But um, the Lord will help us resolve them through sacrament. They are awesome, but we can resolve them there. And we can repent and we can get inspiration and direction. And we can feel, we can feel the healing power of the atonement as we partake of that water and that bread. And, you know, in Jewish tradition, there are so many holidays, and celebrating the Jewish holidays is very important. And some, sometimes what there's a question is, which is the most important holiday? Is it, is it Yom Kippur? Is it um, the Pesach? Is it Passover? Is it Yom Hashua? You know, they're all—the answer is always, it is Shabbat. It oh, is I the Sabbath that. day. The Sabbath is the most important holiday, holy day. For each of us. And we have the opportunity to have 50 of them every year. And I think we should embrace it with so much joy and gratitude. I am so grateful. I am grateful that in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are really encouraged um, to put the Sabbath day as a day apart, a day that we do different things from the days that we do everything in the world. And and to seek the nourishment and the entertainment and the joy that comes from interfacing profoundly with the Lord as his servant. Well, as we kind of end our discussion today, I did want to focus on one last kind of a question for both of us to talk about. And that is, you already mentioned how the voice of the Father came after the baptism saying, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Mm. 
And the thought that came into my mind, and it's also in our Come Follow Me book, is this idea of how do we also have that beautiful thought that he is pleased with us, that he is pleased with what we're doing. He is pleased with our life. Um, have you felt that in your life? Well, you know, what I've learned, Mariana, is it's the only thing that really matters in my life is to feel that the Lord is pleased with me. And it's not that he always is, but striving for that brings the deepest satisfaction, the best entertainment and joy and amusement. And, you know, it's interesting. I think I mentioned to you maybe uh, um, that when I was baptized um, and I was confirmed by by um, President Cook, he said, you will know greater joy than you have ever experienced as you stay faithful to these baptismal covenants. And what I've learned living through many experiences that people would delight. I mean, I've been you, very you've blessed. Had, you've had many a lot of hard and challenging. But also many beautiful, fabulous many beautiful I mean, I've traveled over the world. I've been to many, many places, you know, presidents and kings and, you know, all sorts of amazing people and right. places. But I have not found that to be one bit more enriching and satisfying than being in a little dingy room sitting with someone who needs my help and knowing that being there and talking with that person and holding their hand as they're sick, maybe dying even, is where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. And feeling the love there to me is as precious as any of the exciting experiences I've had. And going through the trials that I've done, mm -hmm. that I've been given to go through, when I felt the Lord there guiding me, directing, letting us know that for all the trial of it, we are, we are in harmony with his will. Um, that is the most satisfying thing. I love that. And I wanted to end with Mark, because we talked about Mark. We started with Mark. And I wanted to also, when to continue this, when do we know that the Lord is pleased with us? At the end of Mark, he talks about the baptism, and right after, basically, the Savior starts doing all these miracles. And these miracles are basically, number one, it's, you know, getting out the unclean spirit. You know, a person has these spirits in them, and he takes the unclean spirits out. And then the next one is a woman. It's basically Peter's mother-in-law. Oh, yes. And she's sick in bed, and the Savior goes and so takes care of her. So I sweet. I, I love that. <laughs> and then the final one is the leper who comes, and he makes him clean. And as I was thinking about, you know, why did Mark, right after the baptism, use these miracles right afterwards? And the thought that came to my mind was kind of going along with this idea of finding the peace and the satisfaction. It is a miracle for us to know because Jesus Christ is the Son of God that we too can be healed from our infirmities. You know, he, he healed these people from spiritual infirmities, unclean spirits, from physical infirmities, from leprosy, but we can find that same peace, that same joy in our life as we look to him, as we 
continue to contemplate on our baptismal covenants as we strive to become better and better. We talked about that a lot today, that we can find that peace and joy in our and lives. And as we take advantage of the incredible connection that we get to the Lord through the restoration of the priesthood and other things. You know, when we talk about healing, you know, I know that no place else, I don't think in the world, can we call someone in the community to come and offer a blessing of real Isn't that healing. We powerful when my daughter Charity was be in, able to do that. In the yeah. hospital, it was extraordinary and we had un I mean miraculous, miraculous experiences. And as wonderful as praying with others was and this opportunity to call on the powers of heaven and to be able to listen to the Lord's promise and then see it fulfilled. We have miracles all around us. But probably we also have to realize that the most miraculous feelings that we can have is that of repenting and being forgiven. And so, you know, we talk about these big miracles, but those miracles of a change of heart, those miracles of becoming a better person every day through repentance, those are the miracles that I think we need to constantly look to as the big mir miracles of our life. Those are the big miracles because for all of the healings, Charity died. You know, I mean, at 35, Charity died. But what a blessing to me to know that she was working that whole life to repent, to prepare herself, to serve the Lord in every capacity, to serve her fellow man, and that her death was not a failure. It was a victory. Exactly. And I think that similarly, this process that we are given to repent and be baptized and repent and repent and repent, these are the great victories in our life as we are able to do them and with the Lord's help. Oh, thank you. And thank you for being with us as we've discussed these powerful concepts of baptism and repentance. Mm -hmm.